Hear now God's holy word from Ephesians chapter 4. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he first also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended, it is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We ask you now to grant us your spirit, that we might receive the things in it, that we might learn from them, that we might be shaped, transformed by your life-giving word. Deliver us from every error, we pray. Deliver us from every distraction and guide us into truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Earlier this month, Charles III was crowned king of the British Commonwealth realm which not only includes the United Kingdom, but the Commonwealth realm also includes 13 other sovereign countries, including Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Jamaica, several Caribbean nations are under the British crown. And and among the peoples of these countries, one might have expected there to be a general sense of interest, even perhaps excitement regarding the rare event of a coronation. For example, when Elizabeth was crowned queen in 1953, there was a great deal of engagement, even in Canada, where people bought their very first televisions so that they could watch the first televised, the first broadcast of British coronation. There were parades and parties all over the world when, when Elizabeth was crowned queen. But the observance of the crowning of Charles was more muted. In places like Jamaica, people responded with a yawn and a shrug. Very few people there watched it on television. In New Zealand, the coronation sparked new conversations regarding whether or not they should dissolve their ties to the crown. And there's a movement in Quebec, in the government of Quebec, to end the practice of of vowing allegiance to the British monarch when politicians are sworn into office that the coronation provoked indifference and and many times hostility against the crown and not loyalty. Uh, Over the next couple of years, Charles is going to be taking a royal grand tour of the Commonwealth, visiting all the nations and all the states under the crown, and it remains to be seen whether this survey of his realm is going to inflame greater enthusiasm for the British royalty among the people of these countries or And our suspicion is probably his presence is only going to provoke more resentment among the people of these places. But it's customary after a coronation for a newly crowned king to travel to every corner of his kingdom to survey his realm, for him to physically, personally establish his sovereignty throughout every land and to announce his rule. And the Lord Jesus, as king, did just this. As a great conquering king, the Lord Jesus took a grand royal tour from the earth to the grave below to the heavens above, establishing his authority in every place. I'm not sure what uh, Charles can point to as his accomplishments as he does this tour. I'm not sure what functions he serves other than perhaps some ceremonial functions. But with Jesus, there is no question why he reigns as king. There's no question about what his uh, role is and what his duties are and how he governs. He's shown us this in his ministry and in his work 
on earth after defeating Satan and the realm of darkness and defeating sin at the cross. Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth, just as we read in Ephesians just a few minutes ago. Jesus' body went into the grave. His spirit goes to the place of the departed dead. As Peter writes in his epistle, Jesus preached to the spirits in prison. And we assume from that that Jesus preached the gospel to the souls of the faithful dead, uh, those who are in Abraham's bosom. So Jesus catches everybody up, uh, everybody from Adam to John the Baptist, Everyone who had died from the beginning of creation, who died in faith, Jesus catches them up on how God has fulfilled his promises in Jesus. And there, Jesus rips the, the gates off the kingdom of death, as it were, and he leads captivity captive, which is a phrase Paul uses in Ephesians and which Psalm 68 uses, which we just sang a few minutes ago. Because the blood of his sacrifice provided a covering and an atonement for sin, now he could bring the departed saints into the heavenly courts because they've been cleansed. They've been covered by the blood of Jesus, and now they come into the presence of God the Father. And then on the day of the resurrection, the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit gave the body of Jesus new life, spoiling the grave. Jesus came out of the grave and didn't immediately ascend bodily to the heavens, but for the following 40 days, Jesus spent time with large and small groups of his disciples. And then on an appointed day, Jesus ascended. He was taken up by God's glory cloud and entered the heaven of heavens, sitting down at his father's right hand, crowned with glory, ruling over all of creation. So from the cross through the grave up to his throne in heaven, Jesus took his royal victory tour over all of his dominion. He visited every part of his domain. Like a conquering king surveying his realm, Jesus established that he is supreme king of all the earth. He's king under the earth. He's king over the earth. The dominion of Jesus stretches up to the heavens. He ascended through the air to demonstrate his rule over the prince of the power of the air, that the prince of the power of the air has, has, has been defeated um, and, and he's broken. In, in his ministry, Jesus commands the seas. He demonstrates his rule over all creation. In healing the sick, he demonstrates and shows forth his mastery over everything that brings us suffering and pain. He cast out demons, showing his victory over the kingdom of Satan. So from earth to sea to cave to air to every corner of creation, Jesus is king. There is nowhere that you can escape his jurisdiction. There is not a single molecule in all of the cosmos that is out from under his authority, the authority of his scepter and of his crown. This past Thursday was Ascension Day, and we know that because we can count to 40, and uh, it was 40 days this past Thursday was uh, 40 days after our celebration of the resurrection at Easter. And so on this Sunday after Ascension Day, we stop every year to remember this important event in the story of the gospel and remind ourselves of this vital truth that after his work on earth, Jesus ascended into heaven and was enthroned next to his father in heaven. I always love Mark's, in Mark's gospel, his simplicity, his economy of language. Mark just says, Jesus was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. I mean, it's just a matter of fact. He just sat down at the right hand of God, but that sitting down at the right hand of God is full of meaning 
and importance. It means that Jesus rules from heaven's throne. Jesus' work does not end with his crucifixion. His work does not end with the resurrection. Jesus ascended that he might continue his work for us from heaven. So we go back and we remember the ascension at least once a year. We spend time on this because there's so much significance to this event. It's important to remember why Jesus ascended into the heavenlies in front of eyewitnesses and why he didn't simply disappear. Imagine if he had just come up missing. There'd be all kinds of questions and there'd be confusion and conflict. Where did he go? What happened to him? Uh, did, did something kill him? Did something destroy him? Um, were we imagining things to begin with? They would wonder. Um, so Jesus doesn't just disappear. Neither does he hang around to be in a specific geographical place indefinitely. But rather, by publicly displaying his ascent, Jesus gives his church a real sense of his continuing presence, and they watch him enter the heavenlies. Jesus doesn't now rule in just this little city or this little country. If he'd hung around for a long time, they could say, well, he's the ruler, he's the ruler of, of Nazareth. He's the king of Bethlehem. Maybe he rules from Jerusalem, but he's not ruler of the earth. But no, watching him ascend into the heavens, he rules the heavens, which means he rules all things. Uh, we could talk, and I could talk all day about the implications of the ascension of Jesus, but today I'd simply like to walk through those lectionary readings that we read just a few minutes ago. Acts 1, we sang Psalm 68. We heard from John chapter 17. We heard from 1 Peter 4 and 5, and I just want to spend a few minutes on each one of those and point a few things along the way uh, to, for us to reflect on. Um, and just a reminder, we use these readings every week. We run a schedule of, um, of a three-year cycle of readings on this lectionary that we share these same readings with Christians across the world. Millions and millions of Christians are hearing the same text every Lord's Day that we read in worship. And notice that the lectionary follows the church calendar. So on Ascension, we read Ascension readings. And notice also that um, they're always connected. And so when you hear the elder reading those uh, passages on the Lord's Day, think, well, what does that gospel reading have to do with that psalm we just sang? Or what does that epistle have to do with that Old Testament lesson? And think, because they're intertextual. They're always connected. They're always speaking to each other. And so today, we'll just look at these um, four, four readings. First, we remember, and we just heard the account from Acts 1, Jesus spent the days after his resurrection appearing to different groups of his followers at different times in different ways, and the way this, the, 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 the Gospels describe these appearances, you get the sense that there is this mysterious and yet wonderful difference about Jesus in his risen body. Those who knew him all of his life they didn't recognize him right away. Remember Mary, when he shows up in the garden, um, Mary Magdalene, she said, I don't, who, she thinks he's the gardener. And then uh, she recognize him, uh, recognizes him for who he is. So some amazing transformation has taken place, and yet he's him. They recognize him. He is, he is Jesus. He's not a ghost. He's not a spirit. He's not an angel. He's very real. You can touch him. You can embrace him as Mary does, as, as Tom, Thomas is invited to touch his hands and his side. He eats. Remember, he eats fish and honey and bread, but then also he appears and disappears in a way that is unusual. He shows up in rooms and he may not necessarily have used the door 
to get there. It's, it's odd how he shows up. And uh, so this comes, Acts 1 comes up, um, uh, shows us this gathering 40 days after the resurrection. Whenever you see 40 in the Bible, you know something is up. Times or periods of 40 days or 40 years always are interval periods between one thing and another. So there were 40 days of rain that put to death the old world in the flood and gave birth to a new world. 40 years of wandering put to death a faithless generation and gave birth to a new conquering generation. And so after 40 days, after a period of 40, something new always happens. There's a new creation. Well, here we are in Acts 1, 40 days after the resurrection. And something brand new is about to take place. So Luke tells us in Acts 1 that as Jesus was talking to his disciples, he was taken up, he was received into a cloud, and he was removed from their presence. He was removed from their sight. Angels come by and they tell the apostles that Jesus was taken up from them into heaven. That's where he went. He didn't just disappear. He went into heaven and that he will come again in the same way. And so there's great relevance to the fact that Jesus didn't die again and leave behind a body. He didn't transform into something else. He didn't sprout wings and become an angel. He is taken up into God's glory cloud and transported into heaven. And the very next time we see Jesus in the text of the Bible is when Stephen is being stoned. Remember, he sees into heaven, the veil is lifted, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of his father. It's because that's where Jesus is. Jesus is with his father. He's at his father's right hand. So there's a whole lot of information to process here in this account in Acts 1. First of all, we need to understand what we're talking about when we're talking about heaven. We're not talking about a place that we could get to if we had the right spaceship. You know, if we could just somehow go out there on the other side of Saturn, we might just accidentally find heaven or stumble into it. Jesus didn't go to some place within our own physical universe so that if you search for him in the right way, you could eventually find him. Think rather of heaven and earth as two interlocking spheres of God's good creation. Heaven is not visible to us right now because our eyes, our sight, our understanding is clouded by sin, but that doesn't mean that heaven is somewhere in a galaxy far, far away. It's present. Heaven is present around us and with us right now. We know this because we have the promise that his holy angels uh, guard us and watch over us and, and take care of us. His angels are with us. The spiritual realm is right around us. The Holy Spirit is with us. Today in worship, we gather before God's throne. Though we can't see him, we know and have this promise that we're entering God's, God's courts in worship. In just a little while, we're going to eat with Jesus at his table. Not that we can see him, but we know this reality that we are with and in the presence of Jesus. These are all realities, even though we cannot see them. Now, occasionally in the Bible, that veil is lifted and you're able to see into the spiritual world, like at the transfiguration. They're at the top of the mountain and Jesus is there and Peter and James and John are there. And then all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah are there. Well, how did they get there? Well, the, they're able to see into, with the glory of Jesus, they're able to see into the world of the Spirit or Stephen's vision, as I just mentioned. Remember when Elisha sees that whole army of angels on the battlefield arrayed around him, 
And Elisha was strengthened by that. We are surrounded by the spiritual world. And there is also this great warfare, this spiritual warfare going on all around us always. And so in the ascension, Jesus steps out of one realm, the physical realm that we see and know and can touch and taste and here he steps out of that physical realm into the other spiritual realm beyond the sight of his disciples. He also went up to do this. There's this direction in, in the Bible. There's always this upward focus when talking about heaven. Um, God looks down on the sons of men. Jesus is taken up into the heavenlies. The spirit descends like a dove. The spirit comes down. John was called up into the heavenlies in the book of Revelation. So there's always this direction, that, that this focus that heaven is up or you're going up, you're being taken up when talking about heaven and the heavenlies. And so in the order of things, in God's created order, uh, heaven is over the earth. Heaven is the spiritual realm that is above the earth and, and that it rules over the earth. Jesus is taken up into this realm of heaven right in front of the apostles' eyes. He, Jesus physically, bodily enters heaven because of what Jesus did faithfully in his death, in resurrection, in the way that he overcame the power of evil and death. Now the Father rewards his work by beginning this work in earnest of joining up heaven and earth once again. And Jesus is just the first. Jesus is just the foretaste. He's the forerunner. Jesus is the pioneer for us into the heavenlies. Jesus goes first. Jesus was the first to enter heaven in a human body. And so the risen Jesus, the ascended Jesus, is not less human than he was before. In fact, he is more human. He's more human than any of us are. His risen body is an affirmation of his previous humanity. The fact that Jesus goes physically into God's presence mean that creation is good and that our creatureliness, our, our created role as men and women, physical men and women, that this is, this is good, that, that mankind is worth saving, not just souls, but bodies, that we're worth saving, worth redeeming, and that it is a great blessing to be a creature, to be a man or a woman. And, and you see in this how, how, how important the integrity of your body is that God created you and is pleased to create you just as he did, that he's very happy and it's very good that he created you. God is pleased that he created you a certain way. You look in the mirror and you pick apart your nose and your ears and your chin and your lips and your cheeks and you look and you, you think of everything that's wrong and God looks at you as he's created you and he is well pleased, not only with your ears and your nose and your hairline, whether it's going this way or, you know, uh, or staying where it is. Um, mine's going this way. Um, and God is happy not only with these physical attributes, but he's also happy that he has created you as a man or a woman. That, 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 that makes him happy. Uh, that, that, and for us to hate that, to hate either your ears or your nose or the sex God assigned you at, at his creation of you, and to, to hate that is to practice ingratitude for how God has created you. It's to practice ingratitude for God's goodness and his wisdom in making you who you are. 
And now God intends to give you a new body fit for the heavens, just like he did Jesus. But the fact that Jesus goes into God's courts physically perfected, he doesn't have frailty, he doesn't have sickness, he doesn't have human weakness, he doesn't die, but that he goes into God's presence with the humanity that he shares with the rest of us. He is identifiable as a man. He has a body. It's a resurrected body. It's a glorified body, but it's a body. And so the resurrection and the ascension don't make Jesus less human, less like us. In fact, the resurrection and ascension makes him more human than us because that's where we were created to dwell. We were created to dwell in God's presence. It's sin that has kept us from being what we were created to be, but that Jesus goes first into the heavenlies and he is our, he is our forerunner. He is our pioneer. Jesus is the first man who is fully at home in both the realms of heaven and earth. And now that we've seen that, now that we've seen Jesus go into the heavenlies, we see it can be done. There's hope for us. We're all looking forward to the time when everything will be renewed and everything will be joined together, when heaven and earth will be one. Right now, when we die, we are at home in the heavenlies in spirit, that we're there temporarily separated from our bodies. As Paul says, we groan to be clothed upon. We are longing for the redemption of all things and our restoration to our bodies, but we're waiting for the time when earth and heaven are finally renewed and united. The ascension points us to the future redemption of our bodies, and it shows us what is possible in Jesus's ascension. We predict and see our own ascension into God's presence. Jesus is lifted up by a cloud. That same cloud we see so many times throughout the Bible, uh, God's glory cloud, the symbol, the sign of God's presence, the glory cloud that led Israel in the wilderness, the glory cloud that filled the tabernacle and the temple, the cloud that rested on Mount Sinai. All these are intersections, little intersections between heaven and earth. And the way Ezekiel describes God's glory cloud full of sound and lightning and thunder that that I wonder if that glory cloud isn't a million angels and the sound coming out of it is their trumpets and the roar of their wings. Remember how Elijah was taken up. Elijah had an ascension, right? Elijah was taken up in a, a, a heavenly chariot of fire with fiery horses. And that, that cloud surrounds Elijah and takes him up into God's presence. So it seems when you think of this glory cloud that we're not talking about a vapor, we're not talking about a mist, we're not talking about a rain cloud, we're talking about a different kind of cloud. And I think it's quite possibly a swarm of angels. Revelation tells us that God's throne is surrounded by 10,000 times 10,000 of angels. And, and it seems very reasonable to me to think this is the cloud that the Father sends for Jesus that ushers him up into the heavenly realm from the earthly realm. He takes him up to, the angels take him up to where God's throne is. So the ascension challenges us to think about heaven and the spiritual realm. It, it, the heaven isn't far off, that it's near. The goal of our existence with regard to heaven then, uh, the purpose of our redemption is not disembodiment. Uh, uh, Jesus goes into the heavenlies as a man with the mission of reuniting heaven and earth once again. And so in this work, creation is not pushed to the periphery. Humanity is not marginalized. Creation and humanity are affirmed and rejoiced over as they are redeemed in Christ, in the ascension of Jesus, it's all redeemed. We get more of this from the Psalms. We sang Psalm 68 this morning. 
That psalm praises God who rides on the clouds, who processes into his sanctuary. In Psalm 68, 24, they have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. It praises the God who rides on the heaven of heavens. Uh, Verse 33, to him who rides on the heaven of heavens, which were of old. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice. There's an echo there of Psalm 47. Psalm 47 says, God has ascended with a shout, Yahweh with the voice of a trumpet. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. So there's this connection in the Psalms between the ascension of Messiah, his riding on the clouds, and his rule over the nations. These two things are put together in the Psalms. His riding on the clouds is connected to his ruling the kingdoms of men and his ability to sort things out on earth. So we then that's how we understand that his ascension is his enthronement. Um, Jesus' ascension to the Father's right hand, then, is not Jesus retreating from reality. It's not Jesus retreating from creation or running away from human concerns. No. Now, at his Father's right hand, as a man, he is there in a position to conquer the nations, to judge unbelief and judge all wickedness and defend his people. Psalm 68, verse 5, and we sing this part. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Because he is enthroned, the, the Psalms tell us that Jesus is not only in charge of heaven, he's not only king of our hearts, he's not only uh, king of the church, he is king of all the earth. And he's not just in some far distant future, he is king right now, and he uses that to defend and to deliver and to protect his people. Verse 17 of Psalm 68, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that Yahweh God might dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits. He rules from heaven for us. We have a friend. We have a brother. We have a king on the inside of of heaven. Uh, He's at the control panel of all creation for our blessing. Heaven is not some disconnected, boring place full of gray people with blank expressions. If, If the earth is a ship, then heaven is the bridge. Heaven is the command center. Uh, it is from heaven that Jesus rules. And some, some may scoff at this and say, well, it doesn't look like Jesus is in charge. Or if he is in charge, man, he's doing a big, a bad job of it. He's making a big mess of things. Um, it is true that the king and his kingdom are not in sync right now. That happens, doesn't it? Doesn't it happen that the king and his kingdom uh, are, are not in, in, in singing the same tune? Um, because of the rebellion of his subjects. There are many things that the king is displeased by right now. There are things that are the opposite of what he's commanded and expressed. But we know that those are the things, that's the list of things that are going to change. All the things that are out of joint all have an expiration date. 
on them. And the kingdom is going to grow and continue. These Proverbs that we've been reading over the past few Sundays, they all show this, that the kingdom comes in bit by bit, slowly, here and there, as the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, goes out into the world. The church goes suffering and giving and praising and praying. Often she's misunderstood. Often she's abused. She's always celebrating, gaining influence and authority. And this is how the kingdom uh, comes in. Um, you, you, the, the defect is not in the king. The defect is in the people who have not yet submitted to him, but will. And that brings us to the gospel reading today from John 17. In John 17, you've got to rewind the tape a little bit. You go back to Jesus' prayer right before his arrest, right before his, uh, the day of his crucifixion. Jesus there in prayer has accepted his father's plan, and he says, I have finished the work you've given me to do now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself. And this glory that Jesus prays for, Jesus knows that glory only comes by the way of the cross. The glory doesn't come any other way. Jesus' crucifixion and his glorification are united, and he prays for his people that they would share in that glory, that they would share in that unity that he has between uh, himself and the other members of the Trinity. And of course, the only way that his people are going to share in that glory is by the way of the cross as well. Uh, it's important to point out that um, Jesus' ascension is not the only ascension story in the, in the ancient world. Whenever a Roman emperor died, it had become fashionable for someone to testify that they had seen the emperor's soul, the Caesar's soul, departing his body and going up into the heavens. And you can find carvings and you can find artwork of the Caesars going up into the sky. And there's a political purpose in, in saying this. Their intent was obvious. The emperor is becoming a god, which makes his son the son of a god. Um, but, but now we read about Jesus who doesn't go up in soul only, Jesus doesn't leave his body behind somewhere, but that Jesus, the entire renewed bodily complete Jesus ascended into heaven. Jesus is upstaging the Caesars. He is the reality. They are the parody. He is the world's true and rightful king, sharing the throne of the creator of the world. But he doesn't get there like the Caesars try to get there. He doesn't get there by carnal power plays. He doesn't get there by worldly politics. He doesn't get there by conquering with horses and chariots. He gets there, how? By dying himself. That was, that was his glory, by dying and giving himself. And when he is glorified in his resurrection and ascension, he doesn't simply bask in his glory. He doesn't let it all terminate on himself, but rather he glorifies his people. He defends his people. He uses his position to lift us up into his glory. As Paul writes in Ephesians, he says, he uh, has, has lifted us up. He's raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ, that his ascension is our ascension, that we are with him and in him. And from there, he intercedes for his people, just as he does in this prayer in Psalm, I'm sorry, John 17 that we heard read a few minutes ago. And he continues to intercede for us at his father's right hand. That Jesus does this work of a high priest. Why, why is he sitting right next to his father? So that he can intercede for us. So that he can listen to our prayers and turn to speak to his father. Jesus has taken our human nature to the very presence of God. Jesus has taken human nature, human flesh, into the heart of the Trinity. And so when Jesus speaks to God the Father for us, when he intercedes for us, 
Jesus speaks to the Father with a human voice. Jesus speaks with human lips and uses a human tongue. He uses human language, carrying our praises and our petitions to him, carrying the Psalms. You know, when we sing the Psalms, we're just all, we're joining him in the songs that he's already singing. Uh, we're singing with him and he sings them with us and we join our voices with him as he intercedes for us. Jesus prays to the Father in John 17 that we would be one, that we would love each other the way he loves us. Whenever you leave your kids home for a little while, if they're old enough to be left alone, you always hope that they take care of each other, that they look out for each other. You're just going to be gone for a couple hours. You're going to come back and you hope that they've taken care of each other. Uh, you, you don't want them to knock each other out. You don't want them to smash out all the windows and set the kitchen on fire. And Jesus prays the same thing as he leaves his disciples. He says, I pray that they'll take care of each other, that they would be one. And of course, he sends them his spirit a few days later to empower them to do that. And so we finally come in that, in that same theme to the final reading, the epistle reading uh, for the day, where Peter passes on instruction on how we behave now that Jesus is enthroned. And it, you heard it just a few minutes ago, but I'm going to read it again because it's, it's, it's been a little while. Um, 1 Peter 5, verse 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. When you and I look at the ascension of our Lord Jesus, uh, we see a little glimpse of something that's going to be revealed and acknowledged by the whole world someday. We see in the ascension that our man, our king, is ruling the cosmos, um, but everybody else is ignoring it. It's, it's almost as if the whole creation is pent up with this great secret that Jesus is the true Lord and King of heaven and earth. And one day that reality is going to explode, but at present it's being repressed through blindness and unbelief. You and I, as Christians, we're in on the secret. And that's a great comfort to us. And it's a great joy. We can be sure that Christ's rule is for our, our good. But on the other hand, there's this tension as well for us all to live in a world as people who we believe that Jesus is king, but we're living in a world that believes power is king or money is king or pleasure is king. So we're, we're always out of tune with the music that the world is playing. We're in tune with heaven's music, and, and, but there's this awkwardness, there's this discomfort with the world around us. And Peter acknowledges this in his epistle, this, this constant discomfort, which in some points gets pointed at us as, as outward persecution and suffering. And so in the middle of this, Peter says, don't despair, be sober, be vigilant. Don't let your persecution and this discomfort and this awkwardness turn into an opportunity to sin because your adversary, the devil, is roaming around like a roaring lion. By the way, that's not a compliment for the devil. That's, that's not uh, that he's indestructible, that he's in um, that, that he's always competent. He's not uh, all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-present. He's just wandering around like a lion looking for someone to pick off, someone to accuse, someone to tear down, someone to tempt. And Satan is an opportunist. He's not an undefeatable foe. Satan's overall mission is broken. He's defeated. His days are numbered, but he's not above taking pot shots and taking you down with him if he can. 
on the way down. So don't be his next victim is what Peter writes. You are not powerless. Because your king reigns over the heavens, you have the power and authority to resist him and know that you share in Christ's resurrected, ascended glory. Now I assume, um, thinking back to um, the coronation of Charles very briefly, I assume that some of the general modern indifference and antipathy, uh, antipathy about the coronation of a king, especially among the subjects of the king, that indifference is partly because people don't want to be ruled. People don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to be reminded that there are authorities in the world to which they must submit. Even more so, um, I, we, we understand why nobody wants to acknowledge that Jesus is king, because to acknowledge that means you have to obey him. And so I assume that Ascension is not a popular Christian holiday for the, for the same reason. I didn't check Walgreens, but I don't think there's an Ascension aisle at Walgreens or, or that um, Walmart has, a, has an Ascension display like they do at Christmas or Easter. Um, and so even in the church, we don't, we don't really make a big deal about Ascension. We don't want to be reminded that there is a king and that you must obey him. Furthermore, you can't romanticize or sentimentalize ascension the way you can other holidays. Everybody likes Christmas because, you know, it's a celebration of a cute little baby. Now, you and I know it's way more than that, but it's, it's easy to sentimentalize Christmas because who doesn't love a little baby? And, and Easter can become this great, you know, moralistic, timeless lesson about new beginnings or second chances or something. There's a way to secularize Easter even or to remove its... Um, importance altogether. But ascension doesn't pull any punches. Ascension is in your face. Ascension says Jesus is king, and you better acknowledge that he is king. He deserves your obedience. He deserves your worship, all of your allegiance. He deserves your life, that you hold nothing back from him. Jesus is king, and who is in charge is settled. It's not up for a question. It's not up for debate. He is uh, the authority. His word is the standard of all truth. And you will be judged eternally by whether or not you repent of your sins and obey his word. Jesus is king. He deserves all your worship, all your love, all your obedience, all of your life. Nothing is more important than obeying and serving the crucified, risen, and ascended king with all of your heart and soul and mind. And, and, and as we do this, we know that nothing that happens in the world Whatever is going on, whatever happens to you this week or this year, all of it is under the perfect sovereign authority of the King of Heaven. That is the message of ascension. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank you that our Savior Jesus is King, that he rules for us, that he intercedes for us, that he has taken human nature right into your presence, into the heart of the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we rejoice over these great things. We ask you to lift our hearts up to you in praise and gratitude for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.